The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today it is my honor to welcome Claire Hope Cummings. She is an environmental attorney, and she is the author of one of the most important books of the century titled Uncertain Peril, Genetic Engineering, and the Future of Seeds. Claire Hope Cummings speaks and writes about something equally important, ethical considerations of corporate ownership of genes in our bodies and the engineering of our sacred native seeds for industrial agriculture. She is interested in the environmental and political implications of how we eat and how food and farming reconnects us to each other and the places where we live. She has incredible experience in that she has farmed in both California and in Vietnam, where she had an organic farm on the Mekong Delta. For four years, she was attorney for the United States Department of Agriculture's Office of General Counsel. She is a founder of the Cultural Conservancy, a native land rights organization. She is based in the San Francisco Bay Area. She is one of the most formidable experts on the topic, looking at how we got to where we are with regard to our seeds. So, without further ado, welcome, Claire. Oh, thanks, Melinda. It's nice to be here. Well, I always recommend your book to individuals who are curious about genetic engineering and why your book is so important is that it helps us understand how we got to where we are today. So let's just start out with a little bit of a background about you, and that is, how did you become interested in the topic of seeds? Well, seeds, my family, I come from a long line of women who love plants, and I've always gardened, and uh, we all have grandparents who are farmers, most of us, and so it comes from just the general love of nature, but when I was looking around for how to tell the stories, because I think these are such complicated, uh, the technology, for instance, of genetic modification is so complicated, it really helps to tell the stories of things that we care about, about our seeds or the land or farmers and so I I pick seeds as a way to tell that story. And I have to say, Melinda, that in writing about seeds and in covering genetically modified seeds for well since the early nineties before there were any products on the market, I fell in love with seeds. I mean they're magical, they're sacred, they're the common heritage of humanity. They feed us. There's so much that can be said about them that and they kind of lie there still and quiet and tiny and they don't get in our way, and so it's easy to forget them. And uh, I have to say, they are in peril, as, as the book's title implies. But I just, I just fell in love with them, and they started really telling me the stories, not only of who we are as human beings, because they've been our companions throughout the human journey, but about how what our values are as a society. And you can tell that story. You know, you can find, you can figure out how, where we are now. Mm-hmm. by looking at what we're doing to seeds. Are we honoring nature? Are we are we working with the natural world to uh, increase, increase its productivity and abundance? Or are we, and here's the operative word, just trying to control it and taking a lot of risks with nature um, in order to 
feed a sort of different idea about taking care of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Well, early in your book, you describe how scientists and university-based scientists really took control of this technology of bioengineering without real public interest input. And I thought that was a great revelation because in finding out how we got to where we are today, we have to ask, where was the public sentiment? Where was the public opinion? And was that infused in the decision to engineer our seeds? That's a great insight, Melinda. And I think a lot of people think this is science. When we're talking about biotechnology as it's used in agriculture, it's not science. It's a commercial technology, and we get those mixed up with technology and sciences. So in terms of science, I'm all for science. I would love to have way more science, and I think the science justifies sustainable agriculture. It doesn't actually support this particular use of technology, bioengineering, if you will call it that. And so what happened was there were scientists, and they were very concerned about it, and they met in the 1970s at a Silomar near here in California, and at some point during that meeting, they decided to basically keep the public out of the process of evaluating the safety of this technology as it was developed. So it was a conscious decision on their part to to sort of kind of have an elitist attitude towards we know what's best. Well, I think it's also important to understand, as I said at the beginning, that this was not a discovery. This was actually created purposefully. I think a lot of people think that GMOs were something where some people thought, oh, wouldn't it be a good idea to to mix and match the species and we could have productivity and, you know, cure cancer and feed the world, take care of all the social problems. If you look back into the history of the 20th century, the idea of using technology to solve social problems was driving a lot of innovation. And so part of that was agriculture and food, and as soon as they figured out, that the scientists figured out how to do what they call recombinant DNA technology, the big agriculture companies jumped in there and said, we're going to use this as a product, as a commercial technology, rather than as something that could be used for the public good. Mm-hmm. And I think... And, that, and, and I just want to add, yeah. and that's the difference between the kind of technology we have now, which is very private and um, commodifies nature versus science, which we need so much of, which is more independent science, peer-reviewed science, and our public universities looking at these technologies and evaluating whether or not they're effective. Absolutely. And I just want to add that in the very first chapter of your book, you write that GMOs were not invented because farmers were asking for them. (laughs) They were created as a part of a larger business strategy to gain and maintain control over the agricultural sector. Just to reiterate what you said, I think it's very important for us as eaters and as citizens, and as you describe seeds as our collective heritage, that we understand what's going on and that these engineered seeds under the guise of science and technology and feeding the world were not asked for, that they are part of a bigger plan to really control the very source of our humanity. 
Unfortunately, what you're saying is true, and there's a lot of evidence for it. You can test this idea by taking a step back from any one particular technology, but just less staying with GMOs. You can do a lot of the things like drought resistance and even herbicide resistance using traditional plant breeding methods. So you can create these same really great products, if you will, but seeds that produce in a particular way, you can do that without genetically engineering them. So the question becomes, why is genetic engineering become the predominant way? And the, and the answer to that is patents. If you can genetically engineer a seed or a plant, then you can patent it. And if you can patent it, then you can own it in the sense that you control the market. You control everything about how that's done. So instead of having money being devoted to understanding uh, how we might make plants more productive, although there are some, and we can get to the good side of that, where people are doing that work and are making enormous progress and great results. But these big companies, you know, I mean, the big seed companies now own almost 80% of the commercial seed in farming. So getting back to also to the idea that farmers are becoming increasingly dependent on this technology, they don't really have a choice. They not only didn't necessarily want these, and I can explain the economics of that, but they're fed into the system, which makes them dependent on a very few providers of, of these highly technical seeds, plus the chemicals that go with them. And so we've turned farmers kind of from being kind of producers that take care of the land and, and give us our food to being just another consumer. And we have this, we have this idea that it's, it's all for the, feeding the world, what actually what's really going on is it's it's substituting what works for what pays. And I and I that's kind of a smart ass way of saying it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's okay to say on radio. Mm-hmm. Um but basically, you know, it kind of gets me going because because we shouldn't have to rely on a few corporations for something as important as our seed supply in our in our food system. And the only reason we're there now is these patents and the fact that the ownership has spread so wide and so deep because of the te- this particular technology, and partic- in, in, especially this technology. As a dietitian, of course, I look at this also from the through the lens of public health. And I want to just bring out something that you wrote further on in the book about safety. And you write that the FDA's statement of policy published in the Federal Register in 1992 says, ultimately, it is the food producer who is responsible for assuring safety. The industry position is captured in a statement made by Monsanto's director of corporate communications who said, Monsanto should not have to vouch safe the safety of biotech food. Our interest is in selling as much of it as possible. Assuring its safety is the FDA's job. So it seems to me that we have a real catch-22 there. Yeah, we do. And we're, we, the consumers, are caught in the middle because we don't know who to believe. These corporations tend to rely on the consumers' fears. They, they play off our fears. And then they play off our expectation that the government somehow has a role in assuring the safety of our food supply. I think mean, it's called the FDA, you know, Food and Drug Administration, when in fact, and here's a story that I think just sums it all up, which is in fact the government has almost no role in overseeing this whatsoever, particularly with GMOs. And here's why: in 19, you know, when Reagan was governor, was governor of California, and then he was president. When Reagan was president, 
part of what he did was increase a lot of the privatization and, and what they call anti-competitiveness. It was the beginning of the time when we stopped using language precisely and started turning on its head. And what was happening was is that uh, they wanted to deregulate government oversight of many things. So Monsanto, this isn't like 1984 or 86, went to the White House and met with George Bush, who was then vice president. And then when he became president, he instituted what they, what they had agreed on in their original meeting with the Monsanto executives. Basically, that's the regulatory system we now have governing GMOs in our food, and that is it's entirely passive. The government only knows what the industry tells it. So there, there isn't any independent government in, inquiry. There's no government testing. There's nothing really going on. If the industry doesn't want to tell the government what they're finding, and, they, and there is many, there's many studies that show there's a lot of evidence of problems, both human health and certainly environmental health, with the use of genetic engineering. So, but if they're not, if the government um, is not told about it, then they don't know and they can't take any action. So it's really passive. It's a voluntary system. It relies on industry to be truthful. And we're talking about a corporation like Monsanto that has been engaged in poisonous chemicals and 2,4-D. And, you know, we have the chemical industry has a long record of disregarding the public health and environmental health. And yet these are the, uh, the fox watching the chicken house, so to speak. So our regulatory system has never been adjusted for an active role for government to protect our health. And it's never, and the other thing that's really important to understand is, is it never caught up with the science of molecular biology. And today, it relies on all the legal principles and policies and science that we had in the 60s regulating chemicals. So they said there weren't going to be any active regulation and that there wasn't going to be any new legal, no, no new legal framework to deal with genetic engineering. And I can tell you the story of why I think that happened. But basically, people need to know it was rigged from the start. Mm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we're speaking with Claire Hope Cummings. She's an environmental attorney and author of the book we're talking about titled Uncertain Peril, Genetic Engineering and the Future of Seeds. Claire Hope Cummings speaks and writes about ethical considerations of corporate takeover of both our genes or the patenting of genes and the engineering of our sacred native seeds for industrial agriculture. Well, Claire, you bring up a really important point here, and that is who owns the science and how are we basing decisions on whose science? So I always like to encourage consumers to question who owns the message and who profits from the message. And generally, when we look at nutritional science, for example, we want to see independent research, research that is conducted or funded by the interested party tends to be biased in favor of the product that's being sold or manufactured. So it seems to me unbelievable that the federal government or even individuals who should know better would be looking at industry-funded or industry-conducted research and saying, yeah, that's good enough. We'll go with that. You say it's safe? Great. Well, that's what's happened. And you asked me earlier how I got into this. The other aspect of it, other than my love for seeds, was the fact that as a government lawyer, but I, I was doing that back in the Carter administration before Reagan took over, when there really was actually some ways that the federal government played a role in health and safety and in protecting you know, the public. But I saw the changes that happened later. 
but I was there because I really cared about consumer choice. I cared about the general public and the consumer being able to know what's in the food they eat and having a choice about it. And once genetic engineering became dominant in our food supply with all the health and environmental and issues that are involved in that, also the consumer lost any kind of sense of choice. There's no labels. We don't know which foods. We we can guess, but we don't have that freedom of choice about uh, how we feed ourselves and our children, and that was such an important point for me. And as part of the sort of takeover, boy, I can just, you know, it does become rather broad because it, not only is there is there this sort of corruption of the role of government, there's also been a takeover at the university level where as we've, again, this is, can be traced back to the Reagan administration, as we defunded the great public universities of this country and we we degraded education, the corporations were able to step in, and you see this all over university campuses where, for instance, Novartis and the big plant biotechnology companies have taken over plant science and agronomy in these universities, and the only money available is to study the uses of biotechnology. So you're not getting the funding for the kind of science, even if you have good people trying to do it, and that distorts the research agenda. You can you could take about anything you're interested in. If you're interested in in public the rights of the consumer, if you're interested in science, if you're interested in farming, and take a look at the way biotechnology has impacted that. From my perspective, also as a journalist, the media when I first studied started covering this issue, there was no alternative voice whatsoever. Everything was written basically by, you know, Monsanto's press releases, it seemed like. Mm-hmm. Finally, Andrew Pollack and a few people in the New York Times and a few other people started going, maybe we should consult some of these other scientists that are that are predicting contamination. They're predicting the, the crops will be affected by, by the chemicals that are being used and overused with GMOs. And so now there's a little more, more balance in some media, it gives an gives an opportunity for people to say there is another way to looking at this, but uh, I would say overall the media has not done a good job of telling the public what it needs to know. So my kind of come down on this labeling issue with we have to I would like to eradicate GMOs, but as long as they're still around, we need to label them so that people can ultimately have a choice about what they eat. Oh, absolutely. As as a consumer advocate also, I, I share your sentiment. I'm glad you brought up academic issues because I, of course, have Chapter 3, which is titled Political Science, heavily marked. <laughs> All of your chapters are heavily marked, as it turns out. But I, too, am very concerned about what is driving the science at our universities and what has happened specifically to researchers who have spoken out or raised issues. You know, is it politically correct, for example, to have a discussion about the Green Revolution? And why can't researchers get their hands on genetically modified seeds and do research at the university level to extend to farmers in rural communities to have better food and farming practices? Please share what stories are most salient to you on this topic. Well, there are several just right here where I live at the University of California, Berkeley, who have been burned by really sneaky, dirty tricks by corporations, uh, maligning their careers, trying to get them fired from their universities, 
publishing articles that are distorted and completely untrue in some cases to destroy. And, and as Ignacio Chapella, who's one of the primary professors, he's now been reinstated and has tenure because none of the accusations were true and what he did was reveal that genetically modified organisms were found in corn in the in its center of origin in Mexico and then I went down with him and you know reported on that story um gosh 10 years ago or so when it was first first happening and watched what happened to him as a result of the courage he had in standing up to that and the book talks about many other people but it's a it's kind of a standard practice now in industry to to attack any critics and to keep them silent and you don't actually have to be right you just create this incredible smoke screen so that you 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 start these arguments in the science community and uh because of the argument and this happens all over i think if you hear about again most any issue you can see this as a tactic if you can if you can create enough noise around it then people can forget the the point that was originally made and and they get disgusted and they turn it off mm-hmm. um we find this to be true throughout any kind of environmental science or any place where where we're you know we're up against the corporate agenda particularly it's, it's happening a lot within um the energy corporations as well so so yeah so these scientists um you know some of them lose their livelihood it is true with farmers farmers have been attacked who who sue Monsanto or who have or or who have been sued by Monsanto who have their crops contaminated by GMOs and uh again um there's this attack on them uh it kind of goes against our idea of what um a free society should be about that we should have a free exchange of ideas and and lordy it would be really nice if we could treat each other with some decency you know the other aspect of this that intrigues me is i read the science that comes through and i see many many good peer reviewed publications that talk about the health impacts of gmos talks about the overuse of chemicals and and uh, insect resistance and all the other problems that are coming up with gmos and great science in fact probably one of the best and along the lines of what we're discussing least known because it was that you know the industry did made a lot of effort to keep it from being known is called the International Assessment of Agricultural Knowledge, Science and Technology and people can look it up with its initials IAASTD and it was a major World Bank study um involving 400 independent scientists and it was endorsed by 58 countries it went all over the world and it asked the question what is the best technology what's optimal for growing food and sustaining the planet Well, unfortunately, biotech thought they would win on that argument, but they did not. It came up with the basics of sustainable agriculture and regional food production and women farmers and the things we know work, and it said that's the way we need to go forward. But then of course, this has been this has been not given any, you know, people don't know about it, but it but the question, the science question has been settled by this study. It says you know biotechnology is not the answer mm-hmm. the other the other stu- the other news report that i think is really astounding comes out of india with something called sri which is a planting process which has the most astounding beyond the green revolution which you know was kind of dependent on chemicals and water and fossil fuels and and it had productivity but it was at a cost this particular method of farming 
is doubling, tripling, and even more the production on small areas of land you know, with farmers who use it. It's it's remarkable, and yet we're not hearing about it. We're here. We're only hearing paid for advertisements that say private technologies are the answer for the future. Um, I hope I've kind of given you the bigger picture there because there is science that supports what you and I and other people who care about sustainable agriculture want and consumer health. And then we have this sort of juggernaut of money that's trying to distort the picture. Mm-hmm. And the argument I hear so often is that we must have this technology to feed hungry populations throughout the world. And if you're not in favor of protecting these poor, hungry people, then you must be a heartless soul. Or we hear language, and I know that you're you're also finely tuned to listen to words and wording, but so often if you question or when we question this technological drive that somehow we're labeled as activists, and I don't know when or how the term activist became a bad word, but I listen for it very carefully because we're often att- anyone who questions the technology is attacked in those ways. And I, I think that we as citizens need to listen for those words and say, you know, thanks but no thanks. I'm concerned about the future of our seeds and of our planet. That's a really good point, and I kind of flipped it in there too earlier when I was talking about the distortion of the language. If you have a political agenda to sell people your product, people understand, I think, the distortions of advertising and public relations. But I think now we're seeing in our political arena just fall all out insanity. We don't know what words mean anymore. And we're going to have to take back the language as well as taking back our seeds and our food supply so that we can talk to each other because we can't have a democratic and a healthy food system that it, that people are involved in, in in whatever way they want to be involved in, unless we can communicate fairly and honestly about about these really important issues. So I I find myself saying today, you know, let's take back our food supply, let's take back the seeds and and grow heritage seeds and get involved, but maybe we also need to take back the world of ideas and language as well. Absolutely. I would love to have you back. Our time is unfortunately up. But I would really love to have you back to talk about some of the issues that have been raised in terms of how technology is going to to help save society and, and really get your opinion about how can we feed the world and what really is feeding the world and get into a point that you made earlier about agriculture and the need for us to put culture back in to agriculture. I love that. Thank you, Melinda. That would be great. Okay, we've got one minute left. Is there anything you want to leave our listeners with until we meet again? Well, I just would like to say that we just all are in this together, and we need to have communities, so as well as technologies that feed us, and to join together in making a different, uh, bringing out a different vision. Well, that is a beautiful message to leave us with, and I want to remind our listeners that we have been speaking with Claire Hope Cummings, an environmental attorney and author of Uncertain Peril, Genetic Engineering, and the Future of Seeds. I think it is imperative that we as citizens, we all eat three times a day. Food is our medicine, our nourishment, our cultural heritage. I think that if you're in a book club or book group, 
that you consider this book as really the heart of the discussion for the new year. I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri at KOPN Studios. Claire, again, thank you for being my guest. I'll make sure that we have a link to the book and your website, and we will schedule a part two to talk about some of the other issues addressed in your book. Oh, thank you, Melinda. Thank you.